This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. It is 5pm in the City of London. You're listening to The Cable. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Marcus Ashworth this evening. Uh, we have got a lot to talk about. It's raining in Paris right now ahead of a key French first round vote this weekend, this Sunday. We'll talk about that in just a moment. We'll take you live to Paris. We'll talk more about the markets, try and get an idea of what is going on here. So many moving parts right now. It's been a busy week for the Fed uh, and it's a busy Friday uh, for the ECB as well. And it looks like the Chancellor could be in a spot of trouble as well. Uh, Rishi Sunak, this is the PA reporting this over the last few minutes, has admitted holding a green card while Chancellor. Uh, the green card is a right to remain in the United States. You're meant to pay taxes. You're meant to give it up if you leave the country. Uh, there may have been uh, some finagling of the rules here from the Chancellor, uh, and he's already in a spot of hot water as a result uh, of his wife, a multimillionaire, um, holding non-dom status while the Chancellor continues to raise taxes in the UK. We'll talk about all of that in just a moment. The other story that's worth focusing on uh, is apparently the ECB, and this is Jana Randall's story, Bloomberg uh, breaking this a little earlier, crafting a crisis response tool to activate if bond yields jump, i.e., the ECB is going to try and maintain spread differentials in Europe between the core and the periphery between, say, Germany and Italy, uh, were yields to go higher as a result of rates going up because of inflation. Marcus Ashworth, what do you make of all of these stories? Where do you want to start? Uh, um, well, let's start with the ECB, because it's slightly less controversial than perhaps the Chancellor's uh, f financial and tax arrangements. Um, yeah, I, I just think the ECB keeps on trying this trick with us. Um, it sort of worked, and there's a lovely tweet from Viraj Patel um, who, who says that the, the secret this crisis tool is called Mario Draghi, which in essence goes back to you know, 2012 and the whatever it takes and this OMT tool they, they, they try to spook us all with at the time, outright monetary transactions, of which there were precisely zero, because the conditions to actually trigger these OMT purchases were, would have been so onerous that no country, nor even Greece, would have gone anywhere near it. So um, I think this sort of holding something back and, and it's Wizard of Oz stuff is, is a, a trick they keep on playing on us. Uh, I'm reading through a, an interesting speech made in February by Isabel Schneibel, who I think has been the most ahead of the game, certainly on warning about inflation, and, and if they wanted to create net zero conditions, what that would be to pushing up uh, yeah. before even Ukraine. So uh, and she's basically saying is that they are going to keep um, focus on the short end. That's where, therefore, the deposit rate rises that they're going to want to keep very carefully limited because that's what really affects financial conditions. Longer end of the bond curves, they have less influence over. They don't think it's as important as well for how it impacts into growth and et cetera. Plus, they need more free collateral, free float. They've definitely restricted over the years. So in that sort of sense, they're going to stop QE, I read through, but they're going to keep this sort of mallet to whack us on the head if, if, if spreads below. And that can only be bond purchases. I don't think anything else works. So, but the key is they can end QE, but they're not necessarily yep. going to raise rates too much. 
We did see uh, BTP yields coming down as a result of that. The euro has been fairly flat against the uh, the dollar today, but the pound has been under pressure. Equities, though, actually fairly broadly positive into the close today. The FTSE 100 up by 1.5%, 76.69, the closing price. Let's get some headlines now. Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much indeed. And here's what's going on, Guy Johnson. Germany and Britain are vowing to send Ukraine more weapons and work together to put pressure on Russian President Vladimir Putin, downplaying differences over imposing tougher sanctions on Moscow. Speaking after talks in Downing Street, Prime Minister Johnson said the UK will send a further 100 million pounds worth of military equipment, including precision munitions that can linger in the sky until they find their target. Chancellor Olaf Scholz says Germany will also continue deliveries to Kyiv without specifying types or amounts. Ukrainian officials, meanwhile, say dozens were killed and injured as Russia bombed a major rail evacuation hub on the east flank of the territory held by the government in Kyiv. Prime Minister Johnson is refusing to rule out further COVID-19 lockdowns, saying it would be, quote, irresponsible to do so. Johnson told GB News that the virus is currently losing its potency overall, but there could be a new variant more deadly that emerges in the future. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. So the French go to the polls this weekend for the first round of voting, uh, which basically whittles it down to two. Uh, and then we get a second round of voting on the 24th, which will ultimately decide who will be the next president. Uh, at the moment, the incumbent Emmanuel Macron is out in front, but by a hair's breadth. It is expected to be very tight in the second round between him and Marine Le Pen. Let's go to Paris now, where I understand it is raining very hard. Bloomberg's Laura Wright is standing by. Laura, how tight are the polls? The polls are very tight. It's neck and neck, Guy Johnson. I'm telling you this sheltering from the atrocious weather happening outside, perhaps an ominous sign for Macron's en marche party. Le Pen, the far-right candidate, she represents harsh immigration laws. She wants France to pull back from NATO. She's about increasing defence spending, a France-first approach. She's been astute in how she wants to tackle the cost of living crisis. That's been at the forefront of her campaign from the beginning. No income tax for people under 30. Macron is going to be a continuation of the status quo. What One policy that kind of did surprise the electorate, though, he has proposed cutting inheritance tax. So that would be a new move for his party. They're divided on the retirement age, always a contentious issue in France, but the first round seems it's all to play for. Well, certainly, Laura, interesting times. Is there one theory, which uh, it's probably my theory, conspiracy theory here, that if Macron does very badly in this first round, possibly even, you know, has Le Pen in front. This might then galvanize this, you know, very French way of doing things with this second round two weeks later. And that actually will give him the, the boost that he needs to, again, prevail by sort of scaring everyone into, into voting for the sort of more center continuity candidate. Well, it could be the opposite effect, Marcus, and this is why the second round is so important. Candidates that come third, fourth, well, there's 10 other candidates, right? So Mélenchon on the left, Eric Zemmour, the other far-right candidate, they could each gain almost, you know, 15% of the vote. Where is that vote going to go? And the key question is, if those candidates stay silent, that's a bad thing for Macron. Also, turnout, really important. If turnout, if abstentions are higher than 30%, that's a problem for Macron and it will weigh in Le Pen's favour. 
The other factor we've got to bear in mind here is even if Le Pen were to win, we have uh, parliamentary votes coming up very shortly as well. Uh, were she to win, she would probably be fairly limited in terms of her capacity to enact policy because it is unlikely that her party would do significantly um, significantly well in that, in that parliamentary vote to be able to deliver her a majority. So what would a, what would a Le Pen um, government ultimately look like were it facing a hostile parliament, do you think? I think Le Pen, she really would want to push some of the immigration policies, and that has really been the symbol of her movement and a continuation from what her father campaigned for three decades ago. But it is a democracy, as you say, so will there be more rhetoric than substance? But it's really hard to say at this stage ahead of those final parliamentary votes. Laura, thank you very much indeed. Uh, I hope the weather improves. It looked very, very, very poor, uh, the weather in Paris, when I saw the shot a little bit earlier on. I could barely see the Eiffel Tower. Uh, Laura Wright, thank you very much indeed. Some great coverage coming up over the weekend. Remember, Francine Lacroix has a special Sunday night on this key vote for France. Marcus, do you really think that uh, we could be heading for a Le Pen victory here? Uh, how high would you put the odds? Oh, I don't think so. But, you know, really, I mean, we look back to 2016 and, um, you know, the, the, the shocks of Brexit and Trump, I, I think that's all made us feel a little bit more uh, cautious about uh, merely just writing off the chances of, of Le Pen here. She had a very bad um, uh, debate with, with Macron uh, last time around, which, which really yep. killed her, her progress. And I don't think she'll be quite as bad this time. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Negotiating uh, with Putin does not seem to me to be full of, uh, of promise. And um, I don't feel that he can be uh, that, he, that he can be trusted. That's not to say I don't admire the efforts of people who try uh, to find a way through. That was, of course, the Prime Minister speaking a little bit earlier at 10 Downing Street after talks with the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who had journeyed to 10 Downing Street to speak with Boris Johnson. Um, the, the challenge here really for Germany is how long they could hold out in terms of continuing to buy uh, Russian gas. At the moment, they are continuing to do so. At the moment, they're continuing to resist uh, any significant sanctions on energy. We have seen them accepting that sanctions will fall on coal. But ultimately, Marcus, Germany has given way eventually. We've seen them resisting on providing weapons. We've seen them resisting on um, sanctioning the, the, um, the SWIFT system uh, and Russia's participation there uh, in terms of the payments that are being made. Uh, we've seen them ultimately having to give ground on coal. Ultimately, it does look as if we are heading in the direction of oil and gas being sanctioned as well. I have to say, Paul Krugman, writing in the New York Times earlier on, really putting the, uh, the stick to Germany, how Germany became Putin's enabler. Marcus, do you think Germany can delay the inevitable that we are going to see sanctions ultimately applied to oil and gas? Well, they are clearly trying their best, delaying for four months rather than three months, which Poland clearly pushed hard on um, at the EU Council. I I think Germany has got to, unfortunately, their feet have got to be held to the the flame here. Uh, And that's why I think it's good to see what the UK government's trying to do and actually putting through uh, the weapons that are needed. Because... You know, you've got, to, you've got to keep on applying the pressure as hard as possible here. And I really feel on sanctions, we've lost the momentum and, in essence, with only you know, sort of seven banks 
kept out of SWIFT and, and a whole bunch of things. We can see that the ruble right, uh, rate is not the right thing to look at because obviously they you know, have yeah. very high interest rates. They've cut it today. But the point is, is that there's a not enough pressure on, on, on Russia. They've got to keep on at it. And the only thing that's ever really work, you've got a billion euros per day going you know, from Europe into, into Russian coffers is you've got to somehow wean them off. And I think now is the time, you know, once this weather gets a bit warmer. Anyway. Yeah. But there seems to be this argument that is being made, particularly on the periphery of Europe, and, and it goes something like this. When, when we had the Eurozone crisis and things were going badly wrong for us, you made us take the pain. And that pain was significant. Unemployment rates in Greece and Italy and places like that went shooting through uh, the roof. Uh, the, uh, the, the yield story was massive in terms of what they had to bear. Uh, the GDP hit was really quite significant. Germany is now resisting when it's in its sort of its turn to take the pain. H- how legitimate an argument do you think that is? Well, I mean, as I said, I don't want to be too beastly to Germany here, but I really do think that at some point they have got to understand what, what, what is all to play. And they want to win or let Ukraine win the battle. They have to apply the pressure as hard as possible right here, right now, in every way uh, they can. And if that requires uh, suffering, rationing, um, or other other ways yeah. and means of sorting things out of their nuclear program, they've got to do it. The, I, I guess the, the question that a lot of people are, are raising is, well, okay, so is that sanctions take a long time to bite? What we need right now is is the next two or three weeks to really rearm the Ukrainians. Does oil and gas really matter when actually what we really need here are, as as Kabila said, the, the Ukrainian foreign minister, we need weapons, weapons, weapons. Isn't that where the focus of attention should really be right now? It has to be all on all things. You can't do right. one and not the other. You have to do as much as possible. And, and simply providing the, the sums of money we are to, to Russia every day has got to stop. You know, if you get, there's no point put half doing sanctions. You've got to do them full and hard. And that's where we've gone wrong all the way through in the lead up to this and, and enabled uh, Putin to, to, to do exactly what he was always clearly planning to do. And Hoodwink isn't convincing he wasn't going to. But this has got, the Germany's come a long way. Fantastic. But there's no point going halfway on this. They've got to go all the way and they've got to cut off, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. The economists, you talk to economists in Germany, actually, there's quite a lot of decent research floating around about this. Actually, maybe the GDP hit wouldn't be that significant. People are talking about maybe a 2% GDP hit. But I guess when you're a low growth economy, maybe 2% is really quite significant. Is Germany prepared to take the pain? Uh, I suspect over the next few days, we will, we will find out. Uh, okay, things are set to continue. We need to talk about what is happening in these markets in a little bit more detail. We'll do that next. Uh, this is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You are listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. 18 minutes, nearly 19 minutes past the hour on this Friday evening. So the dynamic duo of Bloomberg Opinion, Messrs Ashworth and Gilbert, wrote the following a little earlier. If bond traders are correct in their prognosis that inflation has raced to become endemic rather than transitory, the stock market had better watch out. Mr. Ashworth is with us. Marcus, next week we're going to start the earnings season. Is the earnings season going to justify where we are with stocks? What do you think we're going to get next week? Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic on, on the economy in the sense of, uh, you know, just look at unemployment rates. I think earnings will be strong again. Uh, clearly, some of the data I've been looking at just today on the UK economy also shows a very similar picture as of better quarter one growth, perhaps, than people had expected. And I think the same is definitely true in the U.S. 
So um, it's just a question of how aggressive the central bank is going to be because they're just talking about 50 basis point rate hikes and not just one or two of them, but maybe more, but at the same time reducing the balance sheet aggressively. I think the Bank of England are clearly also going to accelerate into what's called as you know, active quantitative tightening, which means proactively selling rather than just letting things roll off. And I think the Fed are going to go straight in. Forget the passive stuff, which the uh, Bank of England have done. They're going to go straight into actively selling 95 billion a, a month, um, which makes me wonder why on earth they were still up for last month buying bonds and when they're now going to turn around and mean selling them. You know, it, it's just not a way that central banking should be run, I'm, I'm afraid. Who's going to buy them? <clears throat> well, uh, it's not going to be China, really, or it's certainly going to be Russia. Um, yep. So, I mean, it's the domestic sort of, uh, obviously, money market funds. Uh, which will buy a lot of the bills, which I think they'll, they'll, the Fed will let the, the bills roll off, and that, that'll help out a very, very tight, squeezed uh, short end of the curve. Uh, that'll solve a little bit. Then I think that uh, regular asset management funds will, will probably do some asset allocation out of, you know, a little bit out of equities and possibly out of, out of private credit and private equity markets, possibly, but that's at the margin. It's Joe Blow. It, it's people saving and looking at, okay, I can whack money in my... You know, college, college retirement, or whatever yeah. funds, and and put it. But, it, but uh, is but is two and a half percent enough to to attract those people when inflation's running at, like, seven, eight, nine percent? Yeah, because a lot of people want to. Uh, they're worried about the economy. They're worried about inflation. And weirdly, it, it, it does the savings effect. We saw that through the pandemic, massive jump in the savings ratio. And I think that people are still happy to to, to wait for a more clearer, calmer market. And uh, they, they're looking at stock prices and go, well, this is actually very high. Maybe I can wait for a dip. So if I walk it into, into yep. bonds for a bit. So, yes, there will be some of that. But, you know, the banks have been the big buyers of, uh, overall. Of, uh, they need collateral. And I think they will continue to be. So there will be buyers, but maybe not at these rates. I mean, I think that's the well, whole that's, thing. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? So how much higher? I, rates are at 2.5% at the moment. How much higher do you think they have to go before people start saying, actually, this, this we're back to normal. This is a I can invest in bonds because I, I'm I'm not doing it for capital appreciation. I'm doing it for the yield pickup effectively. Yeah, well, I think they have to go a little bit higher and they probably will. Um, and that's questions, obviously, how aggressive the Fed are going to be to how high they will go yeah. uh, and how aggressive the Fed will be in, in selling, you know, quantitative timing bonds out as well, because there's, there's two trillion net issuance coming out of the Treasury. And it's probably going to add another trillion from the Fed. Bear in mind, they were buying, now they're actually selling. So the, the net effect is, is double. It, it's, it's going to be a lot more supply on the market, and it, it will take some indigestion on tablets to get it to be swallowed. I guess when you think about inflation, you have to think about it, maybe not now, but where it's going to be in six months' time, a year's time. So the question is, where I, inflation is, mechanically, inflation is going to come back down again. And what I can't figure out at the moment, and I don't think anybody's really got a clear idea of this, because everybody's been so blatantly wrong on inflation, is where ultimately it, it kind of settles back down at. Because if it's settling back down again at, say, sub 3%, then actually two and a half on a 10-year looks okay. Yeah, the risk here is, and I think people are starting to look at it much more longer, but if it settles more like four, then we yep. do have a real problem. And then the Fed feels it has to keep on hiking, hiking, hiking. Goldman Sachs came up with something today on that, and they think that there's a risk that they go... Uh, Fed funds up to four yep. percent because they're not getting that inflation expectations down, and I think that's because the, the employment market is so strong. But in terms of the bigger picture here, 
the expectation that, that there is this kind of bigger picture feel that the Fed is ultimately going to make a policy mistake. Like Larry Summers has been talking about this uh, on Bloomberg today, talking about the fact that a consensus is building towards what he describes as an inevitable U.S. recession. Well, I mean, I, I was just very pleased to see the Goldman Sachs using the uh, fancy footwork line, which is we, we put it in the end of our thing about Fred and Ginger and how nimble steps are required from uh, the, the Fed and Powell. And uh, you know, the chance of a stumble are pretty high. And I think that's what everyone's looking at is the chances of a nice soft landing, as you said, getting inflation down below 3%, which we can probably can, can live with and that the economy then picks back up again. It's just too good to be true. And the risks are that the Fed just overdoes it and it, and it collapses or they just don't do it well hard enough and the inflation doesn't go, doesn't go down. It, it's, it's a difficult one. And how, how slim do you think that landing strip is? I, <laughs> oh, I, I have no idea, and that's the whole point. No one has any idea, at least of all the Fed. And they've been reasonably open about that. They're going to have to you know, suck it and see, as they say, go along. They'll hike until they see some obvious signs that, that they've hiked too much, and then maybe they'll, they'll calm down. That's why some people are even looking at chances of, of, of rate cuts at the back end of next year. And just to come back to the earnings story, I, next week we're going, to, we're going to get the banks. They're going to give us a pretty good idea of what the consumer is feeling right now. I, I, I'm, I'm slightly perplexed by the confu- consumer. Clearly, there, there is a, a reduction in kind of the, 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 the things that you don't have to buy. There is clearly a reduction in purchases of right now. Uh, and I was talking to somebody earlier on today who said, actually, retail inventory is building quite quickly at the moment in warehouses. I, what are we going to learn about the state of the U.S. consumer? Because that's what drives all of this. Yeah, I'm not too worried about retail inventories building. I mean, that's, that's, you know, we've had a logistical nightmare uh, in the last year. And so, understandably, retail inventories have been yeah. built up because, you know, getting hold of goods and processes is excellent. It's, 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 it's the problem with services, which, you know, we've had goods purchases and not services purchases. Yeah. And maybe that's something which does need to create. But, I mean, I, I think, you know, the consumer has saved a lot of money. Absolutely. Are they going to have to spend it, though, on necessities uh, or luxuries? We'll talk more about that next. We're going to talk about the food crisis that could be coming towards us. That's coming up. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Marcus Ashworth this evening. Let's talk a bit about where we are with markets right now. Um, the FTSE 100 closing up by around 1.5% today uh, at 76.69.56. Uh, over the last five days, it's actually in positive territory. It's not too far away, actually, from record territory, to be honest. Most other European markets have spent uh, the the week going down. For instance, the Cacarons and the DAX both down on the week, but both were up on the day. Uh, the Cacarons in Paris is up by 1.34%. The DAX uh, up by 1.46%. The pound was under a little bit of pressure a little bit earlier on. We actually had a, uh, a spell of the day when we were below 130 against the US dollar. We popped back above that. But nevertheless, there is certainly pressure on the pound. Or you could say probably a better way of putting this is uh, we we do have a little bit of a tailwind for the U.S. dollar right now. Uh, We'll come back to the markets in a moment, talk more about what is happening with food. Uh, Before we do that, though, 
Let's update you on the headlines with Charlie Pellett. I thank you very much. And here's what's going on. At least 50 people have been killed, hundreds wounded, as Russian troops reportedly bomb civilians waiting at a train station to be evacuated from the Donetsk region. Russian forces are preparing for what's expected to be a major offensive in the east. NATO warning, meanwhile, that the war may last for weeks, months, or even years, as Ukraine's foreign minister pleads for urgent military assistance. The U.S. says it will deploy a Patriot missile system to Slovakia. Germany and Britain are vowing to send Ukraine more weapons and work together to put pressure on Russian President Vladimir Putin, downplaying differences over imposing tougher sanctions on Moscow. Speaking after talks at 10 Downing Street, Prime Minister Boris Johnson said the UK will send a further £100 million worth of military equipment, including precision munitions that can linger in the sky until they find their target. Supporters of the environmental action group Extinction Rebellion today blocked Tower Bridge. A day before mass protests are scheduled to sweep London, demonstrators hung a giant banner carrying the slogan, End Fossil Fuels Now from the Bridge, bringing traffic across a main gateway to the City of London to a standstill. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. I wonder if Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, saw that. Uh, Charlie, thank you very much indeed. Um, Let's talk about another commodity, food prices. Global food prices are now surging at their fastest pace ever. This is the war in Ukraine effectively chokes crop supplies. Um, We are seeing inflation rising as a result of this. But actually, the bigger fear is that we see significant famines, particularly in the Middle East and across North Africa. Earlier on, Kaylee Lines and I caught up with Jose Graziano de Silva. He's a former director general of the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, uh, which is part of the United Nations, basically a specialist body that manages the global food story and focuses on areas where we're seeing shortages. Let's take a listen to a bit of that conversation. We have much more to look ahead because, uh, unfortunately, the worst part is uh, what we expect about the next season plenty that will begin uh, uh, in uh, spring. What is going on nowadays is a lot of speculation because if you look for the numbers released today by FAO, it's a better scenario than uh, it was in January. Stocks remain on their place. The consumption is a bit lower and that is so there is no reason for this spike of prices in february except okay. the fact that the financial markets are pushing it okay i, I guess the, the the pushback against that argument would be jose that that we have enough food but it's in the wrong place and shipping costs are going up and fertilizer is going up and the market is looking forward and anticipating that prices will rise so while we have sufficient food We've got to move it to where it is needed, and that is going to cost a lot more money. That's true, part, uh, because we do have enough food where we need it. Hmm? Uh, the, w- the countries that will be most affected by the problems in Ukraine are the Middle East and North Africa countries. The, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the poorest of the poorest in the world. But the other regions like Europe, like uh, Latin America and the US, Canada, etc., they do have enough stocks. Uh, there is no reason for this 
concern about uh, uh, food crisis globally in this moment. I would repeat, it can be worst. That can uh, be a a crisis if we have the uh, countries started to put ban on their sports, for example. Jose Graziano de Silva, FAO, former director general, speaking to Kayleigh Lyons and I a little bit earlier on. Simon Casey, deputy managing editor uh, for Energy and Commodities here at Bloomberg, joining us now on the line. Simon, the, the, the question that I keep going back to when it comes to this food crisis is we have enough food. We've just got to figure out how to get it to the right prices. How difficult a challenge is that? It's a huge challenge at the moment when you have uh, the bull to the Black Sea, which is, you know, in many ways, perhaps sort of the focus of, of the wheat market. It's where Ukrainian supplies have always come through. It's where a big chunk of Russian supply comes through. It's basically out of bounds. I mean, we have you know, we, we've, we've seen uh, military activity on the sea. We've seen cargo ships sunk in recent weeks. It's, it's, it's just Nothing's flowing through there, and you know we actually had a story this morning uh, about it was, it was more about the the oil industry. It's more about oil tankers, but just showing that in, uh, insurance companies are not insuring uh, ships to go anywhere near the the Ukrainian coast at the moment. So that's the real problem. You have real physical disruption. Yes, I mean what, as our guest just said, there the, the the supply is there at the moment. In fact, wheat stockpiles are going up to huge, almost record levels in Ukraine right now. The grain cannot get out. But, you know, unfortunately, agricultural commodities are perishable. So unlike metals or even oil, you know, if they don't move after a certain length of time, they get spoiled. They're not consumable. And that's the the real risk here. Simon, um, you know, obviously, the good news, I suppose, is with things like rice, we have plenty of supplies in Asia in particular, having learned lessons um, from the past are not the issue, but the, the real issue is obviously those of you are used to taking grain and corn, and that, as, as we've quite clearly seen, is, the, is part of the Middle East and North Africa. Can um, the West in some ways uh, make up for this by, by you know, shipping uh, as they have to ship gas <laughs> to, to parts of Europe? They're going to have to ship uh, wheat or whatever it may be to, to parts of uh, Africa. Is that logistically possible? It's possible. I mean, there are significant inventories here in the U.S. and, and, and elsewhere. Um, the real question is, how long will this disruption go on? Because if it goes on sort of through the rest of this year into next year, those inventories will, will quickly run out, run out. If you're talking about supplying, for example, a country like Egypt, I believe it's the world's largest uh, wheat importer, and it relies heavily on grain coming out of the Black Sea, it always has done. You know, it's, it's a that's a, that's a country with a significant population. Uh, you, know, it, you can't do that for many months. You certainly can't do it for, for years on end, potentially. We, don't, we, don't, we just don't know how long the situation in Ukraine is going on. That's, it, it, that's the real uncertainty here. And that's what's getting people like the FAO quite, quite sort of uh, concerned, very concerned, in fact, um, is you know, the, sort of the ripple effects going on beyond, beyond the end of uh, 2022. The, the UN's talking about prices potentially going up another 20-odd percent. How much of the price increases that we've seen thus far are already in the system? How much more is still to come? Could that 20 percent be an underestimate in terms of what we could see here? 
It, well, it could well be. I mean, you're talking about food prices, right? I mean, in terms of the actual raw ingredients, the actual grain prices, it could be a lot more. And we've seen some, some massive increases in just in the last few weeks, of course, on the wheat market, particularly in Chicago and Paris, where, you know, we had successive days of prices going up by the maximum limit, the maximum allowed, um, something we've never really seen before in sort of you know, decades, really. Um, it's it, it, the potential is 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 there for the yeah, further further rises, and you know we've let's let's also mention here fertilizer costs. I mean the inputs that uh, all farmers have, be it labour, machinery, or uh, fertilizer or pesticides as well, they've all been going up. And Russia, Russia and Belarus actually are, are the world's some of the world's biggest producers of fertilizer. In fact, for some fertilizers, they are the dominant producers. They've been almost cut out of the global market by recent events, and this has thrown fertilizer markets into chaos. And in some cases, farmers simply aren't going to apply fertilizer to their next crop because they can't afford it. They've done the sums and they're going to go without. That reduces yields. And that's the other thing, <laughs> you know, that, that, that sort of goes into the, the calculations for later this year and beyond how much grain production we're going to see. That's another concern. So, like I say, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. Um, and, and people who follow these markets closely are really concerned. Simon, one of the things which, and this is more relating initially to, to fuel payments, but equally for fertilizer payments, and I think also to grain imports, it's letters of credit in, in, in countries in, in, say, North Africa and Middle East, which, which aren't able to get um, the attention of, of, should we say, more Western uh, companies or, or, or logistics suppliers or, or shippers or whatever it is, to take their credit to buy the, be it, the diesel to, to fuel the various different parts of, of, of machine, farm machinery and or to take the shipments of, 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 of food, whatever it may be, because they cannot get, um, they need central bank uh, guarantees behind them or indeed possibly IMF guarantees to get the whole process. Otherwise, everything falls down because the, the credit quality isn't good enough. So it's a, it's a it's a really serious issue, absolutely. Look, I mean, I think you know, here certainly in in, in the U.S. and in the West, the, with with the Ukrainian war and, and and the impacts on commodity markets generally, the focus is still on energy, right? We've been talking a lot about sanctions on on oil, on gas, on coal, um, and and that's still very sort of current. I think this this food issue hasn't really yet hit home here in the West the way the energy debate has. Uh, I, my guess is, would be that that might start to change in the weeks and months to come. And I think it's not just because it's a sort of an inflation story here in the West, because I think, as you, we've, we've just discussed a little earlier, we have a certain sort of level of security of supply. But I think in the developing world, these are really, really troubling issues. And I think it's going to start to break through. And I think you know, uh, Western nations are going to have to address this to some degree, as you say, if maybe that would be some yeah. sort of multilateral support for, 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 for credit for farmers. Simon, we'll leave it there. Really interesting stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Simon Casey, Managing Editor for Energy and Commodities here at Bloomberg. Mark, I think this is really interesting, particularly in the light of the French election as well. I, the, the big concern in France is is what is happening in North Africa. And you put this story and you overlay it, it on top of what is going on there. You, you could potentially see a huge migration problem emanating from this. If there is a significant food shortage, and we've seen this in the past, 
France, Spain, other countries uh, on the periphery of Europe could really be hit hard here. And you do wonder, kind of, you, you wonder how this could affect European politics in a meaningful way. Well, you, you do. And I tell you something, you know, the firing of the uh, French um, general intelligence or whatever he was, um, for failures anyway to, to, to spot what was going to happen in Ukraine, it was just as much what was happening in Mali and other parts of the Sahel there in the Western Sahara, where France has had a really bad time of it, but they haven't been able to control, um, you know, widespread terrorism. And the point there, you're absolutely right about immigration. If this second-order effect of, of, of what we think is an energy crisis turns into food crisis for the part of the world where we've seen an awful lot of migration, it's yeah. only going to make this problem a thousand times worse, which is exactly what, uh, funny enough, the U.S. Republican who, who in charge of, uh, you know, for, for, for the U.N. Was, was saying only two or three weeks ago is that, you know, give me the $8 billion I need now, now, to get – all this, you know, as much logistical situation sourced out before you've got a hundreds of billions of dollars and, of, of much problem, yeah. and it will be too late to fix as well. And, and here's the other problem you can overlay on top of this as well, is that a lot of aid that was targeted to this region has been retargeted to, to Ukraine to try and help with that crisis. So effectively, we're ending up with a zero-sum game here in terms of the aid story, which is then exacerbating this problem. As a result, probably what, what may need to happen, at least in the short term, is that, that ultimately what we see is, is aid, RA budgets being lifted, not maintained at their current level, but redirected. I, this, could, this could turn into a huge problem uh, further down the road. I don't think we fully felt yet the impact uh, of these, foods, these food shortages coming out of Ukraine, because ultimately some of this stuff will have been warehoused already, and as a result of which it's shippable. Some of it, it is not. Some of it is still trapped. But it's the it's the next it's the next harvest which is going to be really problematic. Um, we'll continue to monitor that story. Up next, though, we're going to turn to a completely different one. Earlier on, we saw a historic launch from Cape Canaveral. We're going to take you there next for that story. This is Bloomberg. This is the Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. So a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket carrying four private astronauts lifted off a little earlier on today, 11.17, UK time, 11.17 Eastern time for the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. This is the first private mission to the ISS, the International Space Station. It is sanctioned by NASA, by NASA uh, and it basically brings the U.S. Space Agency a step closer to commercializing low Earth orbits. It's a, a new era for NASA. Ed Ludlow, Bloomberg's West Coast correspondent, was at the Kennedy Space Center to watch the launch, and he joins us now. Ed, it went off without a hitch, but it's a long road still they've got to, uh, to go until they get to the, to the ISS. Just walk us through what has happened uh, and how long it'll take them to get there. Yeah, so they're in their, their orbit at the moment which puts them on a sort of very slow trajectory to the international space station it's about a 20 hour trip so they'll land at or dock with the space station at around 9 30 a.m eastern time saturday morning um it's a, once they actually reach the international space station it takes two hours for the hatch to kind of unseal the airlocks to unlock and you know all of the checks to be taken and i can tell you guy that in the last five minutes they've taken off their spacesuits and they're having their first space meal because they got a long journey ahead. 
Um, I mean, this is this is the ultimate uh, sort of trinket, isn't it? I mean, all well and good going up on uh, one of Mr. Branson's or, or, or Mr. Bezos's little little wing things, but this is for your aspiring billionaire to sort of tick the box. Is, is this the ultimate? Yes. Yeah, quite. Well, the company confirmed to us last night on Bloomberg Television that it is fifty-five million dollars a seat that the three private astronauts have have paid. They're escorted by an Axiom employee. So he's the fourth member of the crew, and presumably the co company are covering the cost for him. Um, for, for NASA, the bigger picture isn't just charging rich people to go up to ISS. You know, ISS has a shelf life. It's being decommissioned in 2030, and Axiom, along with other company, companies, are working on the next generation of private commercial space station. So this, you know, trip is very much a demo that these companies can do that, safely transport not just human beings from Earth up to the International Space Station, but the cargo that's needed to upgrade them, build new modules, new arms of future space stations as well. The the ISS currently has, what, three cosmonauts on board, three Russians Correct. on board. Are they going That's to be great. meeting those cosmonauts? So I've spoken to NASA administrator or chief Bill Nelson this morning, guys, you know, I spoke to Kathy Leaders, who runs space operations at NASA, and both seem to indicate pretty strongly, right, that they, they think they will go over and have a meal with the Russians. You know, that's a funny way of looking at it, but there's essentially a Western half of the space station and there's a Russian half and the three cosmonauts are in there. But ultimately, it's not up to Putin down on Earth, although I'm sure he has a say, but it's at the discretion of those three cosmonauts whether they invite the private crew or, or indeed invite the private crew and the US astronauts that are still up there and one German as well over for a dinner. I'm just getting images. I can't help myself. It, it, it's Roger Moore and Moonraker. Um, I think right. it was about 95. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't. I can't. Do we know the, the, the identity of this? I'm sure we'll, we'll find out uh, perhaps afterwards uh, who's up there, yeah? Well, we, we have the names of all of the Russian cosmonauts that are up there and the Americans as well. You have to remember, like, the, the International Space Station has been continuously inhabited since 2000 and you know the big difficulty facing nasa right now is that the russians are there and the crew on the u.s side is due to come home and this axiom trip has been bang slap in the middle of what is a really hectic schedule here in florida so it's a complication um for them to go up you know these these private astronauts that have gone up today adds to the number of people and i think in total there's 11 up there right now if my math's correct and there's a question well where do they all sleep and the answer to that is well some of them actually have to sleep in the capsule that they went up in all right okay so let let so the the iss is basically a sort of series of modules isn't it as you say you've got the it russian bit you've got the american bit um and and the russian bit basically stabilizes the entire space station how big a danger is there that that vladimir putin as you say who does have sort of I would have thought significant authority here decides actually you know what we're not doing this anymore uh, and yeah. and ultimately this, is it possible to undock the Russian side from the American side it's hypothetically possible they are modular they can detach and indeed this is just as Axiom hopes to build its own international space station it yeah. does that by originally latching onto ISS and when ISS is decommissioned delatching um, but, you know, I, I would say the tabloid and, and some other media have seized on this idea that the Russians, if they were to leave the International Space Station Agreement, would simply yeah. undock their part, which would be a pretty extreme outcome. So, so does all of the ISS 
So, so you, you talked earlier about the fact that the ISS will ultimately splash down in, in around, what yes. is it, just sort of nine years' time. But will some of it remain up there? Will, will some of it remain up there, effectively forming the genesis uh, of the next space station, which, which yes. probably will, won't have the I, i.e. the international bit? Correct. And that's why we care about Axiom. So in this mission today, SpaceX provided the rocket, right? And NASA is essentially the host on the ISS. Axiom in this first instance is the broker. They organize the trip, but their long-term plan, they're currently building their own module for the International Space Station. That module goes up in 2024 and they build off of it. It's the first block of a commercial space station. So when the existing modules of the ISS are decommissioned, the commercial parts of it will remain up there. They will undock and continue to be in orbit. And it basically, by latching onto the International Space Station, they have a platform on which to build on. They can work with NASA on upgrades and, and piggyback off the back of existing missions. But the ISS as we know it today, the existing modules, they are due to be decommissioned and to crash into the ocean in 2031, which is hard to get your head around, put it that way. Ed, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Ed Ludlow joining us from Cape Canaveral after the successful launch of the Dragon capsule, which is going to dock with the, uh, the ISS uh, tomorrow morning. Thank you very much indeed. Marcus, that wraps things up. Um, just one final word from you. Anything you're watching out for for next week? Anything particular highlight on the, the Ashworth agenda? I've just, I've got to get this Moonraker image out of my mind. <laughs> it's completely fascinating me. I'm having Roger Moore still up there. Um, splashing down in nine years' time. I have to say, um, I, I, I remember going to see that as, I think I was nine years old. Yeah, uh, it was exactly. a birthday trip, birthday trip up to London to see Moonraker. That wraps things up. Uh, we will do it all again next week. Hope you enjoyed the show. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg.